Welcome to That's Illegal, a podcast about international law in the age of nationalism. This podcast is produced by the Global Justice Center, or GJC. The Global Justice Center is a legal human rights nonprofit based in New York City. Our work focuses on moving international humanitarian laws from paper to practice. Our staff consists of lawyers with international law expertise who work regularly with partners at the EU and the UN. Given the recent development of countries turning increasingly nationalistic and the rise in global tensions, we thought it would be a good idea to sit down and talk about the importance of international law, why we have it, and why we should implement it. So every week we're going to take a look at the latest news and break down the legality of what happened using the framework of international law. Today we are interviewing Stephen Rapp. Stephen is an American lawyer and was a Democratic member of the Iowa House of Representatives and a staff director and counsel for the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. He was a prosecutor in the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and one of the chief prosecutors of the Special Court for Sierra Leone. From 2009 to 2015, he served as the United States Ambassador at Large for War Crimes Issues in the Office of Global Criminal Justice under Obama. We recorded this podcast on location near the UN, so please excuse the occasional background noises, squeaking, door closing, and footsteps that you might hear. So GJC discusses legal theory, and we do a lot of work discussing the need for the international community to prosecute genocide, but you have actual experience as a prosecutor in an international tribunal. So can you start by just sharing a little bit of that firsthand experience? Well, good morning. Uh, It's it's good to be with you, uh, and it's great to talk about the experience in prosecuting at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, where I worked um, for almost six years, first as a senior trial attorney, uh, uh, arriving in May of 2001 and being parachuted in as the team leader in the media trial, a trial against the two principals or or leaders of RTLM radio uh, that many called hate radio, though of course that was a matter of dispute and and something we would have to prove, and and another, an editor of a a newspaper, Kangura, uh, both of them for inciting directly and publicly the the genocide, and for other crimes, for the genocide itself having been completed, in other words, uh, the incitement was uh, calling for it Uh under certain circumstances, and if you could prove that in certain situations that it actually created the genocide, then you could also convict them of that crime. We were also charging conspiracy to commit genocide, one of the few cases that did that, and then crimes against humanity. And particularly there, it was important because there had been attacks, uh, and and indeed much of the rhetoric on RTLM and in the media, like Kangura newspaper, had been directed against the Hutu moderates. And even the famous song, uh, I Hate the Hutu, by one of the Interahamwe leaders, was to say, I hate these moderate Hutus who won't stand up for the Hutus against these oppressive, horrible, arrogant, you know, Nazi-like Tutsi, with whom they, you know, believed uh, historically that they had uh, suffered enormous oppression and only in 1959 had turned the tables and now and now they were looking at the return of a Tutsi domination and the reason for the genocide in the end, the sort of sense that we can't live with these people. Before we drove a lot of them out, and then they wanted to come back. So now we have to kill them all for our children. And that's this incredible, you know, sort of genocidal ideology that people really built on, and occurring in the context of a civil war, an invasion by the RPF, as they would call it, an insurgency by the children of the refugees that had been forced out of the country when the Hutus had taken over the Hutu majority uh, through elections, but proceeded with violence in, in the 59 to 62 period. Anyway, it was important 
is I, to also charge crimes against humanity because killing fellow Hutus might not be genocide. Now, it might be instrumental in getting there, but we were also looking to make sure that we had a, an international crime that could encompass at least inciting speech that resulted in violence that was done on a political basis. And so that's why it was important also to win crimes against humanity persecution as, uh, you know, through the use of hate speech, mm -hmm. speech that explicitly advocated violence. Anyway, one of the challenges in this whole area of genocide, I would note that the Rwanda Tribunal, in all of its cases where it succeeded, except for a few minor guilty pleas, there were convictions of genocide. And by 2006, there was actually in an interlocutory appeal to the appeals chamber in The Hague, a decision that we were entitled to take judicial notice of the genocide. Now, this is one of our extreme cases. Obviously, the hundreds of thousands of Tutsis were, were murdered because they were Tutsis. And uh, we took the position that uh, this was something you could take judicial notice of, which in law is like you can take judicial notice of the time the sun comes up on the 13th of, of June. But it was that clear of a fact. I'm not sure we could do that in an American court. But eventually, our judges, after we've proven it time and time again, were willing to take judicial notice of that fact. Understand, they're not willing to take judicial notice that any particular individual had genocidal intent that you have on trial, you'd still have to prove the responsibility of the individuals. But as to the existence of a genocide that some person specifically intended, uh, we were able to establish that. The, the challenging thing in incitement to genocide is what is the condition, uh, what is the circumstances for doing it? And periodically we have these questions when you have people that put out absolutely detestable hate speech, for instance, in America. We have a, a guy in Lincoln, Nebraska, Gary Lauk, who puts out all sorts of just anti-Jewish, uh, horrendous, and, and against other minorities, Muslims, etc., uh, which he flogs to right-wing groups generally in, mm -hmm. in, in Eastern Europe. And Europeans are always complaining about him. Why don't you do something about him? And they complain to social media sites and others and say, we need to block this guy and keep him off. Uh, and of course, from an American perspective, we say free speech. Uh, he can do this. Yeah. On the other hand, when he took a trip to Denmark a few years ago, uh, the Danes arrested him, sent him to Germany, and they prosecuted him and locked him up for four years. Uh, so uh, we have a different standard in the United States. And indeed, our law on incitement, we, when we adopted Farm of the Genocide Convention in 1940, we didn't adopt the incitement part because of the concern about free speech. But to be frank, if you had the kind of circumstances that we had in Rwanda and you were prosecuting in an American court, uh, I think our American court would convict uh, on various grounds. And the speech of a kind that's completely connected to the physical violence is not speech and, and wouldn't have a First Amendment protection. It would be like fire in a crowded theater. But that raises the question of whether in any other particular context under international law, if a person goes out and gives a speech to eight or nine persons or, or puts it out to absolutely a bunch of crackpots who have no capacity to do anything and he said let's kill uh, all of the Muslims in our country or let's kill all of the Jews let's finish the job that Hitler started would that be direct and public incitement to genocide and our judges said no that you really had to have the potentiality of a genocide you really did have to have the fire in a crowded theater and and indeed that's a lot of what happened in the period between 1990 and, and 1994 and in newspapers like Kangura, which constantly uh, tried to pick at the scab of ethnic conflict, uh, some of it forgotten by people on the hills who, who were close to their Tutsi neighbors and intermarried with them, but sort of reminding all of the horrible things they did to our fathers and our, and our grandfathers. And, and there was a particular motivation for that because the Hutu party that was in control of the country was unpopular. It, it only represented one region of the country. It was like, as in many countries, a kleptocratic regime that controlled all the uh, resources 
resources and when there was a drought and when there were other financial crises, they kept it all and everybody else starved. And so in, in 1990, 1991, when there was pressure after the fall of the Berlin Wall, Rwanda, which had a one-party system like a lot of countries did during the Cold War, had to go with multi-partyism. And these, many of these Hutu parties were saying, we're rid of these guys. And a matter of fact, we may even form common cause with the Tutsis or with the RPF. And so their immediate thing is, we've got to get the Hutus together. We've got to remind them of, of the eternal Tutsis that's a bane against all our existence that keeps us from standing up. And so the propaganda was, our enemy is the Tutsi. It's not each other. We need to unify as a single man. And that effort, I mean, it's not atypical in other situations where people try to essentially go with the identity uh, against the other identity and unify people across different uh, socioeconomic and regional barriers, etc. It's uh, sadly a technique that's worked in other places. On the other hand, not a crime. <laughs> the genocide, uh, in the Genocide Convention, when it was debated, there was actually a discussion of whether it should be a crime to prepare for a genocide. Now, if you actually have a plan, uh, then you're going to have a conspiracy. But getting actually a conspiracy, we won eventually a conspiracy to commit genocide in our case. But the appeals chamber, which was dominated by people who came from the French tradition that hate conspiracies, struck it out on technical grounds. And the ICC statute doesn't even include conspiracy. So it's very hard to get this sort of preparatory planning. But um, in the end, we were also limited to uh, the jurisdiction of 1984. Our court was uh, created by the United Nations Security Council uh, in using the precedent that had been used a year and a half earlier to establish the Yugoslavia court, but it was to be an ad hoc tribunal dealing with only a narrow situation, and uh, we had so a so-called temporal jurisdiction on uh, only 1994. So we couldn't even count speeches that had been given in 1993, three or four months before the genocide. We had to deal exclusively with 1994. But in any case, uh, our great challenge was to show that uh, there was this potentiality of genocide, and these speeches were given into it, and that therefore these people were guilty of incitement to genocide, even if we couldn't prove explicitly that that message had caused a particular death. Now, we did have a number of incidents that we could point to more directly. I mean, there were a lot of challenges of the case. I mean, when I arrived, we had around 270 broadcasts of RTLM, but they didn't come from the radio. They'd been recorded by other people, some by the RPF itself, as it was recording them to sort of gain intel on what was going on. And because the RTLM became almost command-controlled communication, for the entire Conway and the killing killers. It would sometimes refer to specific sites occasionally to license numbers, etc. So beyond the general incitement of encouragement and, and, and support for local officials who were leading the genocide, it was also sometimes really calling down the killers on a specific target. So some people were listening to it. We were able to obtain a lot of those recordings, though they were questionable provenance. It wasn't always clear exactly who made them. We had to self-approve a lot of it by having people come in and say, I was familiar with that broadcast, etc. And the unfortunate thing is the resources of the court didn't permit many of them to be translated. The 273, when I arrived, to 50 had been translated into English or French and only 12 into both languages. Didn't largely know what we had, but in the end, I should note, we were able to succeed in, in these convictions uh, after a trial of 34 months. And I arrived and was put in, in charge of the team. There had been a couple leaders before me who had left, one had been let go, one who'd gone, who'd gone off to East Team more to another court, and roughly in court, a team of, of five attorneys. Okay. Uh, we had somebody who came over from Rwanda, who was, who was one of the legal advisors who joined us occasionally. And of course, we had some investigators that worked with us, and I was not only in charge of that trial, I was also in charge of putting together indictments uh, on other cases that might involve hate speech or incitement at the court. 
So given that experience, looking at the genocide against the Yazidis, if you were to prosecute an ISIS fighter, what challenges do you think there are with the evidence that currently exists? Or do you think the case would be is pretty straightforward? Well, I mean, I think it's a quite strong case, uh, and particularly because one of the challenges is often proving the intent, the specific intent, and we have in Dubik and, and other statements uh, by leaders of the Islamic State, their justification for um, destroying the Yazidi people as essentially a pagan or devil-worshipping group and rejecting the idea that they were somehow people of the book, some arguments that they might be considered people of the book, but under the Quran, Jews and Christians are people of the book, and even in the most extreme sense, are allowed to live, even in areas of a caliphate, provided they pay a jizza, a special tax. Of course, if they want to convert, then they don't have to pay the jizza. But as far as the Yazidis were concerned, no jizza. Your group needs to cease to exist. It's an affront against the, the Holy Writ and should be destroyed. And of course, a variety of things were then done to affect that the killing of boys and men and old women and the enslavement of Yazidi women who were then sold into slavery but always to Sunnis and their births may have been constrained by birth control but even if they were to have a child that child would obviously be raised not as a Yazidi and so uh, there were a variety of things done and important to note that there's some misconceptions about genocide one is that it always involves killing at the Rwanda tribunal a couple years before I arrived we had the first judgment to the Akeesu case that involved a mayor in a small town that had originally been a moderate but became by the 10th day of the genocide a true believer and incited complete killing of the Tutsi population there but also the rape of Tutsi women and uh, it was reported to have said in the town hall to men you know inviting them to rape Tutsi women so there's a direct incitement and the judges there found and of course that's the famous case that's in the movie Uncondemned where it was the witnesses the, the victims coming to testify about what had happened that led to the judges asking for an adjournment so the prosecutor can consider an amendment to add rape as a crime against humanity and, and to tie the rapes in, into the genocide allegation. The judges in the end convicted after that amendment for rape as a crime against humanity, but also said that the rape of Tutsi women was one of the ways in which serious injury was committed upon members of the Tutsi group and that effectively helped destroy that group. And we certainly see in other contexts rape being a way in which you destroy and humiliate and uh, particular ethnic groups or in, in other contexts, even sort of political movements, sort of an effective, as we say, uh, horrendous tool used in particularly non-international armed conflict in Congo and CAR and elsewhere. But uh, in Rwanda, it was also one of the ways in which the Tutsis were destroyed. And so the judges found that that act was genocide. And similarly, and clearly under that precedent, uh, the ways in which the Yazidi women were enslaved and sold off as slaves, taken in and sexually violated on a constant basis by leaders of the Islamic State and their followers was a way in which the Yazidi group was destroyed. And even if, when this comes to trial, many, we hope, many of even the 3,200 that are still captive will be alive, it's not necessary that they be raped to death, it is in and of itself a way in which genocide can be committed. The other thing that people are confused about is the deaths, the numbers. And uh, of course, one has in the Holocaust and in the Rwanda genocide, in terms of the territories under the control of the extremists, whether they're the Nazis or the Hutus, 70% uh, or so of, of the Jewish population in one case and the Tutsi population in the other killed. And so you have, in the Rwandan case, 800,000 dead in the Holocaust, 6 million. And people tend to say, oh, you've got to have that kind of dimension. No, you don't. What you need is the intent to destroy the group.
if you have the intent and you organize it, and in the end you only kill a half a dozen, that can still be a genocide. But they conflate it with the crime of crimes against humanity extermination, which is as part of a widespread systematic attack against the civilian population. The ICC statute is part of an organized plan and policy. You engage in mass killing. You need to prove mass killing, then you have crime against humanity extermination. You don't need that in the context of the genocide. And of course, the the statute also says in whole or part, and and this has opened up the situation where, for instance, in Srebrenica, 8,000 Muslim men and boys were killed. Uh, The women and young children and very old men were bussed out uh, to areas that were clearly controlled by the Muslims and that the Bosnian Serbs didn't envision taking over. So in the Balkans, the campaigns are often referred to as ethnic cleansing, if you simply commit, simply, I mean, it's horrendous, but if you simply commit mass killings uh, or other rapes or predations, amputations, etc., to the, have the effect of driving people out of an area in order, for instance, to create an ethnically pure area of your own, a greater Serbia, a greater Croatia, many of us say, well, that sounds like genocide. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> You're letting them, there's a place where they can live and you're basically trying to take over territory. I, mean, I would like to say that that was genocide, but the cases of the ICT, Yugoslavia Tribunal, are clear on that. On the other hand, in the Srebrenica context, where in that entire area around Srebrenica in eastern Bosnia, basically the ability of the Bosnian Muslims, or Bosniaks as we sometimes call them, to continue to live, that whole community is destroyed, and its ability to be there and to continue to live as it has for hundreds of years is wiped out by this strategy. And so that's viewed, and generally it needs to be sort of a significant part, but it's significant that that area is completely, essentially Muslim-free, but through these acts of violence to essentially destroy a defined part of the group, that, that community. And so the cases then hold that that's a genocide. And we've had several people convicted of genocide, and we have Karadich recently, the Prime Minister of Serbska, convicted, now being appealed, and within a few months because he was on the lam for 16 years, Mladic, the general, his judgment will come in at the trial level at the Yugoslavia Tribunal in The Hague and most anticipate that he'll be as well convicted of genocide. So even though in other places, even in areas under the control of the Bosnian Serbs, they're letting Bosnian Muslims live, it's still a genocide. So in the context of the Yazidi community, where it's several hundred thousand Yazidis live in our world, and the number of killings is, because a lot of the mass graves are still under ISIS control, Control, not precisely calculated, but they're north of 3,000. They could be as high as 10,000. And this particular area of Sinjar, which is really sort of the heart of the Asidi community, sees these mass killings and this enslavement of the women under the Srebrenica precedent, I think, even though we may be talking about 2% or something of the overall population being killed and another 2% women in that area being enslaved, that that can constitute a genocide. And based upon what I've seen, the evidence, though more needs to be done, I think it would be a strong case for it. Do you think there might be problems with gathering evidence and creating a case based on it, considering that it is still under ISIS control and still a war zone? Do you see what's happening currently damaging evidence that would be necessary? Uh, based upon what we have, now obviously there, there are mass graves, even even Kocho, where there was a major killing incident of uh, Yazidi men and old women, etc., as, as the area was taken over by ISIS in mid-August of 2014. That area has recently been retaken. The mass graves there, as the mass graves on Mount Sinjar, have not been 
effectively analyze the security situation isn't strong and it creates problems, it could be booby traps and that kind of thing. There's been some effort by the International Commission on Missing Persons uh, that does have authorization from both Erbil and Baghdad to assist, at least so far, in removing some of the uh, externally exposed remains, but not to actually dig and do the sort of archaeology, the careful archaeology that one needs to do in mass graves before you even move to the question of drawing DNA from the bones. Mm -hmm. Now, we think in the end of the day, this won't be as complicated as Srebrenica, because in Srebrenica, the Serbs actually moved the bodies several times, dug them up and moved them in other places, and there are fragments of, of the same body found in like three different sites, and this has meant that there's had to be hundreds of thousands of DNA tests in order to begin to pull together remains that families would accept. I mean, we're close to 6,000 now, the 8,000 victims having them reburied in these annual ceremonies that occur on the anniversary through the DNA, and we hope that eventually we can have that, and there has been effort a bit disorganized to collect blood from family members, and although blood technically isn't needed, one can use a swab, but to create a bank where one can begin to do identification. Is that necessary? Well, I think it would be useful, uh, and I would really want it if I were prosecuting, in order to be able to identify the victims, in part because I want to see old women, I want to see boys and men, I want to see this sort of effort to take out all the groups other than the women and girls that are taken off to be sexual slaves. So I think that would help establish not just the sort of intent to destroy, seeing how they did it, but also the sort of actus reus, the act of, of the genocide. Then if one had today an investigative commission or a more robust mission of some kind that would work with the local authorities and provide security, I think one could uncover that evidence. And, and certainly there's sufficient evidence now to begin investigations if you had a court, and of course we do have at least a case going forth in Germany under, under universal jurisdiction, obviously we want to see cases beyond that, uh, either in a properly constituted court in the region or an international court. So this is something that we talk about a lot, but in your own words, the importance of these prosecutions and defeating ISIS by successfully prosecuting and putting in jail their leaders for genocide as opposed to defeating them militarily. Can you just speak to the importance of justice? Well, I think it's very important to, I mean, there are a whole lot of reasons why justice this is important. I mean, I, I always start as a prosecutor, even though prosecutors in our country, in the United States, represent the, the state. And, and if you're a UN prosecutor, you're representing kind of a collection of states. Mm -hmm. But I'm more familiar with a situation where there's a representative of the victim in the courtroom, that's the prosecutor. And that's how I always wanted to see myself. And certainly, the sort of the first and last thing that I think about in regard to any aspect of a case is what do the victims need? What do they really desire? What are they entitled to? And uh, the recognition that they've been victim of a horrendous crime and that, that statement through uh, the judgment of an independent court is an extremely valuable thing for witnesses and anyone who's been a victim of crime know that one has sort of a sense of the way in which it destroys and weakens the self-image and, and can depress people forever and it's kind of a victimology which you know oh you must have been weak that's why you're a victim it's your fault you brought it on all sorts of ways in which crimes against women have often been accompanied by that kind of thing. And so prosecuting and, and convicting powerful men, specifically for the crimes against people that they have weakened and destroyed, is one of the ways that you reverse that power relationship. And it's extremely enabling and empowering, I think. I mean, I justify what I do on that basis, but I, but I do find that when you do it right, the victims and survivors are immensely, you know, I don't want to say that they're happy, but they, but they do feel something very important has been 
accomplished. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've had them say, you know, we'll take the judgment over reparations, even though they desperately need reparations. They want that truth established. I mean, as opposed to saying, well, we'll just pay you and we let the guys go free if you give them the choice. Quite often they'll say, no, I'll choose the latter. And I've seen that in several surveys and situations. So anyway, that's, that's extremely important. I also think from the point of view of you want to deal with how to respond effectively to the threat of ISIS, which is a global brand and people are adopting ISIS colors and knifing innocent human beings on bridges or rising up in certain areas and taking cities, saying we're ISIS, uh, even though they may not even have any direct communication with the caliphate. Sometimes they may, but obviously you have a brand that has an attraction to people that feel themselves discriminated against and marginalized often in societies where they've come to live and who view traditional leaders as, as Uncle Toms, basically, people who have sold out the cause and they're the pure, you know, bliss was in that springtime to be alive. It's just this great millennial kind of movement and that's so attractive and obviously many people join it and go in and blow themselves up. But how do you counter that brand and killing uh, people in battle or dropping a bomb or a drone on them converts them into a martyr and you know, people who are ready to blow themselves up would rejoice at being a martyr in battle. Suicide bombing is kind of, but battle victory is even a more exalted kind of state. And uh, and so that kind of thing doesn't necessarily diminish the, the, um, the brand or the attraction of it. The other aspect of it is then the favorite alternative when it comes to counterterrorism, if you get the person who's responsible or anybody that's associated with the person that's responsible, one uses counterterrorism laws, which have been written in very liberal, open ways. In America, for instance, allows you to prosecute anyone that's provided material support to an organization designated by the president. And so the president can designate ISIS or FARC or any other groups, and all you have to do is join them or send them 10 bucks and you're providing material support to that organization and you can be convicted and sentenced up to life. It depends upon sometimes your relevant conduct that they can prove about what your kind of sentence is. But what does that mean? Well, you're basically being prosecuted for association and you're being prosecuted basically being, being a member of an organization you're proud to be a member of an organization that's fight for God for the restoration of this proper kingdom on earth, the caliphate. Doesn't, doesn't stop you from, from joining. Now, executing somebody in that context will martyr again, you know, blocking them up even for the rest of their lives, probably a more effective sort of punishment in that respect. But actually convicting them for their crimes. Now, of course, the, the Dubique people boast about their sexual violence, etc. But I mean, when you get into the facts of, of people raping nine-year-old girls and the sort of exploitative, brutal, even lascivious sort of conduct that people are engaged in, I mean, maybe the Koran isn't as solid on some of these things as we might like, but it still uh, doesn't approve of sex with prepubescent people. And it's such a dirty, horrendous kind of thing that having people convicted of that is better. And, and other acts of brutality that are committed against old men and girls and helpless people on the hill, you know, this kind of thing. You're not chopping off the head of a local police chief or somebody that's done something to you. You're, you're killing somebody that's weak and, and feeble and begging for their life. That's the kind of thing that I think it's hard for a lot of people to look at, except someone that's really an extremist and say, well, that's something that I like. 
like that's something I want to do. And so all of that says that a trial and getting into the sort of acts by which this is done to fellow human beings, many of whom are very much like they are, like those that might sign up are, I, I think is a more effective uh, approach. That said, um, you know, that's often difficult in proving those things. Uh, genocide in this context may be a little more easy, but one of the problems often in the terrorism context is that you don't have insider witnesses, you don't know exactly what somebody was doing within the group. Classic terrorist organizations have very small cells, uh, very difficult to actually uh, bring in informants and, and all of that. And so that's part of the reason why terrorism tended to use these sort of simplified ways of, of prosecuting and investigating a person's own specific involvement isn't easy. Uh, but the variety of ways to do it, this is an organized movement, it's like a state, people are issued IDs, uh, there are orders that are available, there are documents that have been obtained, uh, there are uh, foreign fighters that have come back who are familiar with certain people, there are some of the victims that recognize those that did it to them, not a lot. That's, uh, you know, the usual problem here is the witnesses that you need will be the witnesses that may have been in the movement. Uh, so it's not easy, and you can't do hundreds of cases like this. You have to do emblematic ones of leaders, and, and sometimes those take longer, much longer than the, the short, well, you're an ISIS member, yes, no, okay, yes, you're convicted kind of approach, but I think oh so much more valuable for the victims, for society, and, and indeed for deterring these crimes in the future. You've worked for the U.S. government and in international justice, and one of the problems that we discuss a lot is the United States seeing itself as exceptional and isolated from international justice. Can you talk a little bit about what the U.S. could be doing to strengthen the United Nations, international justice? Well, and do keep in mind, uh, on this particular issue, uh -huh. uh, and it's one of the things I marvel at, because in a lot of places in international justice, mm -hmm. uh, there's difficulty of pursuing the perpetrators. Mm -hmm. They have friends in high places, they have allies, uh, Russia actively supports Assad, committed 90% of the crimes in the region and passion of mine is bringing those people to account, uh, Assad and others, because I think he opened the space for ISIS, sent 13 million people into refuge, responsible for now close to half a million deaths. I mean, these are horrendous crimes, but that's more challenging because he has allies, and allies in the Security Council that can block any action as they have already, like referring the case to the ICC through a veto. Uh, nobody likes ISIS. There's no country that says, oh, ISIS is our brand. Uh, it's not even like uh, Afghanistan or the Taliban that were somewhat supportive of Al-Qaeda or something. You don't have anything like that. And so um, we ought to be able to get something done. There are certainly members of Congress in both parties that want to see accountability. People like Congressman Smith over in New Jersey, very passionate about this, has moved legislation for accountability on ISIS and for reinforcing documentation efforts, et cetera, and moving toward the establishment of, of some kind of independent court. All of that is positive, and people of both political parties want to see this. And uh, the impression I have at the moment is that the U.S. government, now the president hasn't spoken to this, okay. and the State Department, of course, is populated by professionals who are serving often in acting capacities and positions that you normally would have, a confirmed assistant secretary for human rights or ambassador-at-large for global justice, as I was, or as the assistant secretary for uh, Near East Asia, etc. We don't have anybody like that at the moment, but the people who are in the acting 
positions strongly support the idea of accountability. And at the moment, the initiative is in the hands of the British, who've been pushing for some time, pushing as of last September of 2016, during the high-level sessions of the UN General Assembly, Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson came to New York and advocated the establishment of an international investigative commission for Iraq and for ISIS, specifically only the ISIS crimes. Uh, they believed that Iraq would support this, and basically the British position is we don't want to push it unless Iraq agrees to it, specifically even asks for it. Well, to date, Iraq has not been willing to ask for it and has fears. I mean, one sort of the priority is what well, we need to defeat ISIS first. There's that argument. Uh, the other thing is obviously the political situation in Baghdad is very complicated and uh, and getting sort of agreement on this on all sides is difficult. Thirdly, the Iraqi government remembers all of the years in which it was subject to not them, but the Saddam Hussein regime was subject to sanctions and, and UN resolutions, at least 10 of them that followed the first Gulf War in 1990-1991 and still remained in effect even after Saddam was overthrown for a period of time. And they say, we don't want to be under any UN mechanism that sort of runs our country. We finally have our country. Help us drive out ISIS and we can deal with this just fine. Give us some assistance. We'll work on it. Well, I have a lot of respect for, for the Iraqi government and for the blood and treasure and the hard fight to regain their country from ISIS at the moment. But it's important that when we have trials that they be fair and that they serve the interests of the victims. Obviously, there's a lot of distrust on the part of the Yazidi community, uh, particularly against the Iraqi government in Baghdad and even against the Kurdish authorities from Erbil because of the withdrawal from the Kurdish forces at a particular time during the Sinjar conflict. Since then, they've obviously helped recover Sinjar, but there's still not complete trust in that area. And there is, of course, this tension between Erbil and Baghdad over the control of northern Iraq. There's the Kurdish region, which is sort of autonomy in a federal system, but it claims territory, including now Sinjar, which obviously the Iraq government disputes, and there are even areas they've long disputed, like Kirkuk, that they haven't settled. And so there's that tension, and trying to get this all resolved and to get agreement on what this would look like has been difficult. I understand the U.S. has said we'll support the Brits on this, and I've recently heard that they're finally now making some progress. What that will look like, I don't know. Obviously, I'd like to have something more than that, but I do think that if you can have a mechanism and you can have uh, the United Nations involved and you uh, then, within that mechanism, work to develop this evidence and have that group that would not be associated with one side or another, and it can be helping provide security and the mass graves, the excavation and forensic analysis and all of that, that can help build these cases. And to be frank, every time we've had a commission like this in the past, uh, this has led on to a justice solution, uh, which is more internationalized, at least more independent. May not be an ICC referral, may not be an ad hoc tribunal, but at least could be a hybrid court, and because of the United Nations, unlikely to have the death penalty, more likely to ensure an, an adequate defense for the accused, transparent trials, victims' participation, and a variety of things like that, but that would convict people on, on solid evidence and would be able to convict leaders of ISIS that were captured. Many low- and mid-level people have already been captured during the operation in Mosul, and, and will continue to be, and, and may 
be available elsewhere as they try to flee from the region. And, and trying them in region would be preferable with the victims and affected communities uh, close by. So I do think that that could be the formula, but obviously that can't be just the, oh, we'll go ahead and provide assistance for any kind of process that might take place. And, and it has to be something that reflects the interests of Iraq and the Kurdish region and the victims, etc. And I think that can be done. It's also important that it does have the ability to convict people for these crimes. And we've already had in, in the Iraqi context with the Saddam regime, an Iraqi high tribunal was criticized because of the death penalty and judges being replaced sometimes because they were considered pro-defense and there were some, some aspects of it that were not good. On the other hand, it did have a statute that allowed uh, for convictions as it did in the Anfal campaign against the Kurds of genocide. And as you know from the Global Center, it, cases of sexual violence uh, recognized in that region, in that court. But that court only existed under the statute for the regime crimes of the Saddam period. At the moment, neither Kurdish law, which has its own criminal code, or Kurdish region, or the Baghdad state, federal authorities have a genocide or crimes, crimes against humanity in their statute. It's important that that be done and applied in this situation, not that there can't be other crimes of violence under Iraqi law that are also charged and convicted on, and even in appropriate cases, ones that relate to terrorism specifically. But when you do have effort to destroy a group, when you do have the persecution that's occurred against Shia, on a religious basis against Christians, against Sunnis on a political basis, etc. You've got crimes against humanity, persecution, which is almost like genocide, though it allows for a broader group of victims, including political victims. I, I think it's important that those crimes be recognized and persons responsible for them be convicted of them. So do you have any final thoughts or anything you want to add? Anything that I didn't ask that you want to talk about? It's a continuing effort. It's a horrendous thing in our world that these crimes continue to be committed. But, you know, in the course of this they had in the period of right after World War II, the establishment of the tribunal at Nuremberg and important precedents established about the fact that, that you could have crimes uh, committed that were a matter of international concern and that even powerful individuals could be held to account and, and held to account individually that these are, even in a state context, it's not the state that commits the crime, it's the individuals that take over the state that commit the crime. Now, of course, in the ISIS context, we're dealing with a non-state actor that acts like a state mm -hmm. and, and in a lot of respects. And during the 19th beginning, None of this development uh, of international justice was possible during the Cold War. But with the end of the Cold War, we established, the United Nations established the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, for Rwanda, special courts for Sierra Leone, for Cambodia. And then we have the International Criminal Court, which is only significantly ratified by 124 countries, but not the U.S. or Russia or China or most countries in the region, including Iraq and Syria, part of it, but can take cases uh, if it referred by the Security Council. But we, we've established this sort of fab of international justice. It's been extended to include the leaders of non-state group in Sierra Leone, where I was chief prosecutor. We prosecuted the leaders of the RUF, the Revolutionary United Front, which was a group that was seeking to take power and committed mass sexual violence, mass killings, mass amputations in, in that effort, and was convicted of crimes against humanity and, and war crimes for that. And so, and, and we've had other cases now in the ICC that have involved non-state actors, specifically groups in, in the Democratic Republic of 
Congo. And so we've established this law, but there are places where the law doesn't reach um, because we we haven't been able to get the country itself to put it into effect, or uh, we haven't been able to do it through the international system, through particularly the UN Security Council. But it's important. My passion is to fill those impunity gaps and to find ways to do it in the context of the crimes against the Asidi. Uh, the one thing that we can do and that people have been working hard at um, since these crimes began not quite three years ago is, is documentation, but that does need to be uh, organized. And the important work of the victims groups, or groups like the Commission for International Justice and Accountability, a, a private NGO, which I'm chair of uh, their advisory committee, which has done a lot of documentation on the crimes in Iraq and Syria, including the crimes against the Yazidi. But that material needs to be shared with an investigative body that has authority under a national or international mandate. And so that's the next step. And I think in this situation, with the, the global interest in this, I think this will happen. But whether it happens right, it depends on all of us to be advocating uh, every day to make it happen. But I'm confident that the, the day will arrive when we will have uh, trials of ISIS leaders uh, for the genocide against the Assyrians. In my view, can't come too soon. But if we keep working at it, they will for certain arrive. Thank you so much to Stephen for joining us. We were honored to have him. Please join us next week for more discussions on international law. Thank you.